All the glory forevermore to Him. And then before the hills sang that song, Kevin opened with a scripture that all have sinned and fallen short of what? So what we have fallen short of the glory of God. So scripture has something to say about the glory of God, and we're going to peek into that this morning. But it's going to take us a little while to get to that theme. Because we are in the very final verses of the Gospel of Matthew. And when we complete these final five verses in chapter 28, we will have completed an entire exposition of the Gospel of Matthew. But here we are, very near completion. There's five more verses. So as we look at the end of this book, now you know endings are important. You know, how's that movie going to end? How's that book going to end? How's this conversation going to end? Well, I want to ask, how does this ministry on earth end? Jesus has been there. He's he's born um, the baby in the manger. We're celebrating the Christmas season right now. And then he grew to be a man and he ministered and he gathered to himself disciples. And he's done incredible things. He's spoken incredible things. But now it is all about to come to an end, at least his earthly presence and ministry. So how will Matthew end this grand event? What will be said or what will Jesus do in these final minutes there? Will it end in a, I'm going to miss you, bring it in for a big group hug? You know, what What do you do here? Will he end it by preaching another lengthy sermon? Uh, will he end it by performing another incredible miracle and leaving that for them to write about and to talk about? How will his earthly ministry come to an end? Will they all gather together and sing one final song together? Well, that's what we're going to find out in our passage this morning. If you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and in the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want us to see this morning two primary things in these verses and First of all, I want to look at the reaction of the disciples to this. And then we're going to begin to look into what is known as the Great Commission that Jesus gives in these words. So here they are. The band, the group of disciples. There's at least the eleven there. Scholars think that more than likely there's more than just the eleven there. Some say the whole 500 are there. Others say a few dozen. But his disciples, and at least those that he groomed, those that were closest to him, are gathered in Galilee. And as you know, Galilee is primarily where it all started, right? That's where Jesus taught the most. It's where he ministered the most. Most of the miracles that he performed were done right there in that region. 
And that's where it started. And here is where it comes to an end as well. And they're on this mountain. And it's the exact mountain that Jesus directed them to meet. Now, you know that Jesus has died and He rose from the dead and He walked out of that tomb. And He has been appearing to people, His disciples, kind of sporadically or randomly along the way. Uh, They didn't ask for it. There was no official meeting place. But He would, one time He walked through the door, another time He just appears. And He's had breakfast with His disciples. He walked the road of Emmaus. Uh, with two other disciples. So he's just kind of randomly being uh, appearing and speaking and ministering to his people. But this particular meeting was scheduled. This is really the only official scheduled meeting. When he told the women that came to the tomb and they saw that the tomb was empty and he instructed them, go and tell the disciples what you have seen, my brothers, and tell them to meet me at the mountain which I will instruct them. So this is an official meeting that he has scheduled. And he is there before them. He is giving them a teaching. Now they know that, or they foresee, that this is the final meeting. Jesus has told them this. We want to look at what goes on in their heads and how do they react to this. There's two responses that Matthew tells us about. By the way, Matthew's the only one that mentions these responses. And whenever something is in Scripture, we want to to take note of it. What does God have here for us in these responses? Well, the first thing that they do is they worship. That shouldn't be surprising, right? Many of the disciples are in an attitude of worship. Of course they are. I mean, look who is standing before them. And these disciples are convinced now more than ever that they are before the Son of God, God in the flesh. And not only has He performed miracles of healing and He's set people free from demonic activity, but He rose from the dead. And they are just reverencing Him and adoring Him and loving Him, bowing before Him in an attitude of worship. That's a beautiful thing. What else would you expect them to do? And then we have another group among them in verse 17. They see Him and they worship. And then Matthew says, but some doubt it. Now, these are his disciples. These are at least, at the very least, those that he spent the most time with. He invested in these men. They heard more of his teachings than anybody else. They witnessed more of his miracles than anybody else. They shared life together. They did everything together. He fully invested. And so they know him better than anybody else. And yet, some doubted. Now, what do we do with that? You would think at this point that all would have fully embraced Him like those that worshipped. And yet, Matthew adds in there, but some doubted. So there are still, there are disciples that are still kind of, they know Him, but they're still processing this. They, they're following Him, but they're still 
processing what's going on. Now, I don't know exactly the source of the doubt, but I can just imagine perhaps it is, well, you know, I saw him do a lot of supernatural things, but he was dead. I mean, I watched him die. He was as dead as dead can be. And I'm just not so sure that this is him. Maybe it's some kind of spiritual form or something or or some kind of scam or trick. I don't know, but I do know what death looks like. I don't know about this resurrection stuff. And they're just trying to take it all in. Or maybe they're a little shy because they loved him so much. I mean, they, they put their whole life behind him, but then he left. He died. And they went through that trauma and that grief. Remember, they weren't expecting him to rise again. But maybe they're holding back, thinking, well, I gave him my love and devotion once and it, and it disappeared. I'm going to be really cautious before I give it again. I, I don't know the source of doubt. But they were doubting. They were holding back. And doubt simply means to not be certain. To not be sure. So they're just not, there's something about this they're just not quite sure about. Now, it's not unbelief. doesn't say that they didn't even believe at all. They're getting bits and pieces of it, but they're not fully embracing Christ. And therefore, they're not fully worshiping. Whereas some are in an attitude of adoration, some are just holding back. They're hesitating. They're cautious. For whatever reason, they required more than the others. The others were content. The others were convinced. But not this group. So what do we think about this? As I think about this scene, I think it's uh, two things. First of all, it's kind of a bad reflection on man. Secondly, I think it's a great reflection on God. A bad reflection on man in that they should have entered into an attitude of worship. They didn't need more evidence. They had holes in their faith. Perhaps they relied too much on their ability to discern what's true and what's not. Perhaps the death of Christ really tugged on their emotions. But they have holes in their faith. And it's to their shame. As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 16, the Lord in one of His post-death teachings or appearances had this to say to them. He rebukes them in verse 14. Afterward, He appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and He rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw Him after He had risen. And they received the report from the, from the women. They didn't believe. They're not taking all of this in and they were rebuked for it. But here, it's doubt. But the Lord is displeased in this response. And we don't know why, we just know the what, and that is that they doubted. Now, what's really taking place? What happens when we doubt where we really should be fully embraced or, or gripped on the things of God. 
is that the bottom line for us is not only is God displeased, but we miss out. If you think about this, this is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And this is Jesus' final moments on His earthly ministry. And there were some that were doing the very thing they were created to do. Worship the King. Worship God. You can't be any more human as God created you to be than when you are adoring your Creator. That's as human as you get. And that's what Christ is doing. He's restoring our humanity as we are meant to be. And the farther we get away from worshiping and adoring God for the God that He is, really the less human we are. And so they are in the epitome of the humanity as they fall before Him. And the others just aren't sure. They're not giving their hearts. And therefore they're missing out because to fully worship and embrace God means I'm trusting Him. I know I have all these things going on in my life, but I'm trusting Him at this moment. I am relying on Him. I'm giving my, my burdens and my anxieties and the load of this life. It's all on Him and I'm trusting in Him. And, and, and I am comforted by who He is. All these transactions take place when we give our hearts to God. I'm trusting Him in my life. It's more important that I worship Him than I worry about myself. And when we are not so sure of the character of God, in essence, when we're doubting, we're saying, well, I mean, I believe parts of Him, but I don't know if He's really that trustworthy. I don't know that I can truly rely on Him. I don't know that He'll be there for me when I get to this place if I make these decisions. And when we do that, we just miss out. We miss out on opportunities to fully enjoy the benefits of Christ that He has given to us. Doubt, like grief, it's a place that sadly sometimes we visit because we all have to process. I mean, this is real. It's one of the things I love about Scripture is that it doesn't paint God and humanity only in a good light. Scripture reveals God as He really is. So we get to hear about the judgments of God. But it also paints man as He really is. And so we find some yucky stuff in the Bible, don't we, about man. And here we have this final moment, some not-so-good stuff about man, and that is, after all this time, he still has seeds of doubt in his heart. So doubt, you know, we maybe some of us take longer than others and it's a place to maybe visit if we have to, but it's not a place to live. Let's get what we need to work it out, whatever we got to do to be able to trust in God because we know that's the goal, we know that's the aim. So whatever we need to remove, whatever we need to settle, we want to do that so we can fully embrace and enjoy God and, and not keep holding back. Have you ever found yourself holding back? You'll hear a sermon, you'll read a book, and it will inform you about the character of God and how trustworthy, faithful, reliable He has our interest at stake. He's doing everything for His glory, and yet we still hold back. And when we do that, we are missing out on worshiping our Redeemer 
and our Creator. So it's a bad reflection, I think, on man, but it's a good reflection on God. How is it a good reflection on God? Because this is disappointing to Him, and yet, even though those doubters didn't realize it, they're receiving the mercy of God in these final moments. They're not getting what they deserve. They deserve wrath. When we fall short of the glory of God, we deserve wrath. So even at this, these final moments, they're just basking in mercy and don't even realize it. God's wrath is being withheld because of the sacrificial blood of Christ. It's a good reflection on God because look at His mercy. Now how many of us would have just been irate if you're about to leave after investing all this time and they still don't get it? It's just mercy. Jude, in Jude's little book, doesn't even have chapters, just verses. Verse 22, of all things, here's what Jude has to say to his fellow believers. Have mercy on those who doubt. Isn't that incredible? As disappointing as it is, as wrong as it is, and as much as we miss out, God still teaches us, have mercy. He's a God of mercy. And so we see man perhaps at his weakest, but we see God with a glorious reflection of mercy even at this point. God has mercy on doubters. So some are enjoying him and others are not. And we, as we think about this reaction, very real reaction, and we know that there are times in our lives that we go through doubt. We're just not sure. Circumstances get the best of us. Pain and hurt gets the best of us. And we think, well, I'm hurting this much. God must not be who I thought He was. And so sometimes we hold out. But we need to know something. And that is that we don't always get the evidences and, and the assurances that we think we need in order to fully embrace God. There's a lot of times because of a lack of faith and a lack of belief, holes in our heart, we say we need more God, we need more signs, we need more miracles. The Jews came to Christ and they say, show us a sign. Here is God in the flesh, what more do you need? No, show us a sign. We don't always get the more that we think we need. And so we, we want to really pay attention to what is God doing in our lives, whether you're saved, perhaps you're, you're here this morning and you have not yet bent the knee to Christ. You've not yet said, no, you're my God and my King and I live for you. Or maybe many of us have done that. But... We don't always get the signs and the supernatural, circumstantial changes and things to bring our hearts where we think they need to be. The problem is not that God's not doing enough. The problem is that we're holding back. It's our own heart. And unless we recognize that our own heart is the problem, then we can't move forward because we're too busy blaming circumstances or God for not giving us the surety. Have you ever said, you know, God, I just I would believe if you would just do that. Or if you would just do this, that's not the right position. God would say, well, what else do you want? The problem isn't that I need to do more. It's that I've already done more than enough 
And you're holding back. You're sinfully holding back your life from me. Your faith. So keep that in mind as we continue to live this life. Pilgrim through as disciples for the Lord. We serve a merciful God. So what does he do? I think another sign of God's mercy is that even though some are worshiping and some are doubting, he gives them all a command. He includes them all in it. He gives them something to do. He puts them to work. And that brings us to our second point, and that is the Great Commission, or what I'm going to call at this point, God's mission. And you'll see why. I want to read these verses again. And this is what Jesus says to them. Final. It's the final moments. You know it's got to be good. You know it's got to be important. So he tells them, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did you see that coming? Make disciples? Where did that come from? When did Jesus teach anything about making disciples? I mean, we heard the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about be kind, be merciful, be peacemakers, be poor in spirit. He taught us that following him could very well mean, you know, blessed are the persecuted. We might get persecuted in following him. He's, he's given teaching after teaching. We know that we're supposed to deny ourselves and take up a cross to follow him. We know that we're supposed to be His disciple. I mean, a lot of them left their nets and they followed Him as His disciple. But when did He ever say anything about making disciples? Did Jesus forget this teaching and right before He leaves, Oh, guys, I forgot to tell you something. By the way, on top of everything else, don't forget to make disciples. Well, these words are far from being disconnected to the ministry of Jesus or Matthew's gospel that Jesus is king. In fact, these are the climax. We need to understand these verses that everything actually has been pointing to this moment. Everything Jesus has said, everything he has done from birth to death to resurrection has been pointing to these sets of words. These are incredibly important words. So important that I don't mind taking two or three or maybe four sermons in order for us to understand these. I want to basically preach a little mini-series, if you will, on the Great Commission. Because this is absolutely crucial. This defines what God is all about this defines what we are all about. And so if it's that important, I want to take the time to make sure we are gleaning from this what we need to glean. This is something that he has given to his disciples. And if you're a disciple, 
then it's important to you. Now, this is something that He has given to the church, a mission for individuals and the saints as they gather together. So, if this is our mission as a church of Christ, we need to understand it. What's behind it? And I want you to know that in a very real sense, and I'll come back to this, but everything that we are about, everything that we do, all the decisions we make as a church is based on these verses. The reason we have prayer meetings, the reasons we have a missions committee, the reasons we have a worship team, the reason we sing and exalt God at a certain segment in our worship time, the reason we have an opportunity to give tithes and offerings, the reason there's counseling offered here at church sometimes, the reason we have retreats, Bible studies, community group, everything that we do is touches this. It's a part of this. It's a, a fulfillment of these words because these words are what give us meaning and purpose. So in order to understand this properly, I want to put it in context. Now, what's the mission of the church? What are we doing here today? What exactly are we trying to accomplish? Why did you get up early? Get all dressed up to come here when there's a lot of other things you could be doing? What is the purpose of all of this? Why am I even taking the time to prepare and preach sermons. Why do we do what we do? It's because of these words. Now, New Covenant Fellowship over the years, as I think about what Christ has said to us, and actually, and I, I've been here a long time. I'm one of the originals I was one of the younger originals, not the youngest, but one of the younger ones. I was a baby Christian when this church um, was founded. I hardly knew anything about Christ. Um, And I still just know about this much. But we have been here for about, I think, 36 years next month. My math is correct. And by God's grace... Over the years, we have become a well-established church. I mean, we're we're rooted and grounded. We've been here a long time. We've We've weathered a lot of storms. We have experience now. And all these years, whatever leadership God put in place, it wasn't always me, but whatever leadership God put in place, they were intentional to make decisions, to guide in different ways. And through the years, as we establish ourselves as a church, we even have some church traditions now. Flowering of the cross and hanging of the greens and Thanksgiving share service. These These are custom for us. This is what God is doing among us. And personally, I think that we have a lot of good things in place. We have a good routine. We have a good rhythm. There's lots of opportunities for spiritual growth at New Covenant Fellowship. Now, I'm not saying we do everything right. I'm not saying we do everything as well as we could. There's room for a lot of improvement. We certainly have weaknesses. 
I personally have weaknesses. But overall, we have developed, I think, some very good habits. And there are many good things in place. And all these things were intentional. And all of these good habits and routines were started with pure, passionate motives to serve God. And as a result, we have what we have today. What I would say, a very sound, well-established church. As I think about that, good habits and good routines are a wonderful thing. But they're also something we have to be careful about. Because the whole purpose of getting in a good habit and a good routine is so that we get to the point where we no longer have to put a lot of thought into it, we just do it. And if we get to that point, then sometimes we find ourselves going, doing good things and following this wonderful rhythm that has been set in place, but we're no longer really thinking about, well, why am I here? And what am I doing? And why is this guy up there talking so long? And why do they sing so many songs? Why, you know, why do we have... Why do we do these things? And we can just check out. We can be here. We can, we can move our lips. We can listen to this. We can thumb through our Bibles. But really miss out. See, good habits and good routine can betray us if we are not careful. And the way that we, get, we be careful is we go back to the pure motives. We go back to why we do what we do. And that's what this passage does for us because it tells us where the church and we as individuals got our mission. Now, if you're the kind of person that loves purpose and meaning and you want to know, I want to be sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing here on earth, this is the passage for you because this is where it is. It's a command to do the Great Commission. So we're going to answer why we do what we do throughout this little mini-series. But before we can answer that question fully about, well, why does New Covenant do what New Covenant does, I want to back up a little further to understand this passage. Because in order to understand, I think, properly the church's mission or your mission, what you're doing in your homes and so forth, we really need to understand what God's mission is. Because if we're not doing what God's mission is, because God's at work and He's doing something, and if we're not doing what God is doing, then we are wasting our time. And in fact, God is very busy and God does have a mission. He is also purposing to accomplish something. So what is God up to and what is God purposing to accomplish with the world and what is He purposing to accomplish with you and this church. What is all this about? What is creation about? Why am I even here? Why did God introduce Himself to me? Big questions. A lot of times, if you say, if you ask the world, what's life all about? They will gladly tell you, well, it's about you. Life is all about you, obviously. You have 
marketing that caters to the self. Marketing creates a craving and then gives you a way to fill it. And because we are somewhat naturally self-centered, well, we love this kind of stuff. And so the answer of the world is life, it's really all about you. It's about you being self-fulfilled, you having the feelings that you want or think you deserve, you having the life that you want or think you deserve. It's about you getting your way. Have it your way. It's all about you. But if you were asked the church, well, why am I here? And what is God all about? What is God's mission? A lot of times the answers aren't so different than what the world has to offer us. And there are a lot of believers that I think come to the conclusion that, well, what this really is all about in God's mission is me. God's mission is me. And they point to countless scriptures. Follow me with this reasoning. You look at scripture and say, well, obviously, what is God up to? What's he doing? He's blessing me. He's serving me. I mean, look, he loves me. He's making me beautiful. He's redeeming me. He's with me every second of the day. And if that's not enough, he gave his son for me. And he's blessing me and blessing me and blessing me. God's mission is me. I'm the center of his attention. I'm the apple of his eye. And he spends his time and his efforts blessing me. Life is about me. I exist so God can care for me. Now, are these things true? Does God relentlessly love us? Absolutely. Does God invest himself fully in our lives? Does he put the pieces back in order? Absolutely. Did he die for our sins? Absolutely. All of these things are true. And we find them in Scripture. But why is he doing those things? Does it end at me? Is that what fulfills his purpose in his heart? That he has served me? Or... So am am I the point or does it go beyond me? Well, Scripture teaches that that's a part of the process, but it goes beyond me. And I think what happens is that we stop in thinking, well, God is all about me. I've actually got a list of things God's working on right now to give me what I want in life. And Lord forbid He take anything out of that list or any harm come into my life because that's not how it's supposed to be. And when we look at life that way, we think that God exists to make us happy. And when we don't get our way, we aren't happy. Have you been unhappy at all this week because you didn't get your way? Christmas season can be absolutely ruined for you if you think life is all about you. Because under that tree may not be what you wanted. See, when we think that life is all about us, we are setting ourselves up to be miserable because it's not true. So what is beyond us? What's God's motive beyond just loving on us and ministering to us and caring for us so well. What is His main mission? Well, it's not me. It's actually Him. 
God's mission is God. God's mission is the glory of God. So what God is doing is He is accumulating glory for Himself. And that is the reason that He does the things that He does in our lives and in this world. In other words, God is for God. God glories in God. And let me just give you a quick example. Let's take a very familiar psalm, Psalm 23. And we're going to read it, and you'll see how easy it is for us to think about, well, life is about me, and God is about me. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's one thing God does for me. He makes me lie down in green pastures, I get the green grass treatment. He leaves me beside still waters, I get the bubbling brook treatment. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Look what He does for me. It's about me. Isn't He a wonderful God? And we stop there. But why do we get the green grass and the bubbling brook treatment? Verse 3, we find out that He's doing all of this for His name's sake. You see how it, it comes through us but goes beyond us. It's to echo glory back to Him. And a lot of times in our mind, I think because we're... Well, our sin nature wants to believe it, but we're inundated with the world that, no, it's really all about you and, and even God is all about you. But then we find out when we look at Scripture closely that, well, He does love us way undeservedly, but it's to bring praise and glory to Himself. God is about God, and that's His mission, is to bring glory to Himself. And He'll do that in any way it takes. Bring glory to Himself. Now, some theologians call this the difference between cat theology and dog theology. Boy, are we, we are in a society that just goes crazy about pets today. Man, do we go crazy about animals. But anyway, that's for another time. Cat theology and dog theology. What are you talking about? Cat theology or the cat thinks like this. My owner feeds me, cares for me, and cleans up after me. I must be God. The dog says, My owner feeds me, cares for me and cleans up after me. He must be God. When I get home, my dog, man, he is so excited to see me. He just can't get close enough. He practically knocks me over. It's not content with a pet on the head. I mean, he wants the whole treatment. He wants to, to bathe me in his licks and all that kind of stuff. And he's just so excited that I'm there. The cat that we have, I don't even know where that cat is. Unless it's time to eat. When it's time to eat, the cat will show up. Other than that, I have no idea what that cat does in the daytime. See, there's a difference. And I know it's funny when we think of it in terms of animals, but we think like this. We are prone to thinking that, well, God, you've done so much for me. How wonderful life must be about me. 
And when we think that, we just missed it. We just missed everything. We we can even be doing the right things, but we're on the wrong track. Because God is about God. He's about His glory. And everything that takes place in this world with created, animate, inanimate things, it is all to echo how glorious and wonderful He is. Life is about Him. We can't do the Christian life properly unless we understand that life is about God. When I wake up in the morning, I need to remind myself life is about God, not about me. Because if I don't remind myself that, I have the potential to be pretty grumpy and miserable. Because I'm not going to get my way all the time. Perhaps there's some out there that are in that stage of grumpiness and misery right now because you're not getting what you think you deserve. Life's not about you. And if God has to cause a form of suffering... Or if God has to choose us not to give us what we think we need, if that's what it takes for us to get our focus back on giving Him glory, it makes perfect sense. Things that we think in this world make no sense make perfect sense when we understand that we are here for the glory of God. I want to just read a few scriptures. For time's sake, I'm actually going to skip a few of them, but I want to take some of the biggest, most important chunks of redemptive history when God really showed up and just did very important, glorious things. Why did He do those things? What is the root behind them? Well, why did He create us? Why did He even bother to create us in His image? Isaiah 43, 6-7. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, when I formed and made. Whom I formed and made. So the whole reason that we are even created is not just to walk around being cute. We're created for the glory of God. John Piper says that we exist for the praise of His infinite perfections. We exist for the praise of God. If there's anything we can do that can bring praise to God, that's what we need to be about. You know, one big act of redemptive history is when God called Israel to Himself and redeemed Israel. Isaiah 49, 3. He says to them, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So all the things, the exodus and so forth, all the things that God did for His people, the manna, the water in the middle of the desert, the shoes that didn't wear out, you know, you could start to think that that's for them. It's for them so that God glorifies Himself. We are not the end. It goes through us and beyond us. God raised up Pharaoh. He raised up Pharaoh as an instrument to show his glory. Pharaoh was the most powerful figure on the earth at that time. And he's a picture of how powerful man can be. And then you see a picture of how powerful God is. This is all that man has to offer and God just puts him down and puts him right in his place effortlessly. 
And we read that it was as an instrument for His glory. He saved Israel for His name's sake, Psalm 106. Jeremiah, I'm just because of time's sake, I'm just throwing some scriptures out here. Jeremiah 13, 11. I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. We are here for the glory of God. 2 Samuel 7.23 Who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be His people, making Himself a name for the glory of God? So God plants, God saves, God destroys, He blesses, He chastises, He plans, and all of these things are for His glory. Now, we know that Jesus sought what? The glory of His Father. Oh, no way. It was about us. It was about the exorcisms and and giving the poor food and satisfying hunger. It was ultimately for the glory of God. John 7, 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of Him who sent him is true. And again in John 12, remember the uh, scene we read about it in Matthew of the garden when Jesus is wrestling about giving Himself as a, as a sacrifice? What were His words? How did He come out victorious on this? He understood the root of all things and He says, Father, glorify Your name. And then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. See, it's all through Scripture. and We just forget about it. We lose sight of it. Why in Matthew 5.16 did Jesus tell His disciples to do good works? That they may see your good works. Let your light shine before all men. That they may see your good works. And then what's going to happen? Glorify your Father in heaven. Everything is for the glory of God. As a matter of fact, last Scripture, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul's teaching the church, And he just comes out and says it. Do everything for the glory of God. If you eat, do it for the glory of God. If you drink, do it for the glory of God. As you're enjoying the taste of things, glorify God. He created the food. He created the taste buds to enjoy it. All the variety. If you're enjoying the view, glorify God. Everything. As you pull out of the parking lot, as you drive down the road, glorify God. Because when we think that life is about us, you can go from being pretty happy to being pretty uh, uptight and miserable. So, I think it's been a couple weeks now. I was on a mission. Now, I have my own missions in life. I'm a mission kind of guy. I was on a mission and I have to get to point A to point B. And I'm coming back to this area after going to North Carolina. And I'm on 138. And... Um, somebody pulls out right in front of me, you know, just enough time for me to apply the brakes so it wasn't like a near miss. Pulls out right in front of me, goes slow, and then turns. <laughs> so I, before that, I'm just enjoying the drive. I've got my earbuds in and listening to some scripture. And then this nut gets in my way and interrupts my rhythm and my routine and my mission, and I'm upset. That quick. 
because you got in my way and I have a life and I'm paving my own paths. My mood went down. And I realized, thought, man, when I was reading this material for the glory of God, I'm thinking, yep, you're right. When I think life is about me, I usually wind up pretty miserable. But they have a life of their own. They have a reason, whatever. God's in charge. Isn't it interesting that when God sent John the Baptist, He says, prepare the way. Make a path. Level the mountains and the valleys. Why? So I can walk through it? No. It's all for Christ. It's all for God. And in order for us to understand our purpose, why we do things, why God does things in our life the way He does, we have to understand that God is for the glory of God. Next time, we'll see exactly how God brings glory to Himself. May God bless the preaching of His Word this morning.